not always, but often, your God is too small. My God is too small. Not that he actually is, but in the ruminations of our mind and the inclinations of our heart, we make him out to be really, really small. Especially in times when there is suffering and pain in our life, we wonder, God, do you know what you're doing? See troubles in our world, God, do you know what you're doing? We make him out to be small when we go after idols instead of him. We make him out to be small. And rather than shooting him glory, we, we shoot glory elsewhere. And what I'm going to do starting today out, just kind of get your mindset on this concept of how you view God as small or big. Do you view him as working things out in your life for his glory and he's actually involved? Or do you view him as kind of absent, small, can't really get much traction in your life because he doesn't have enough power? I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to start it now, and I'm going to finish it at the end of the sermon, and hopefully you'll be able to connect the same story from the beginning to the end because you're smart enough to do that, all right? This story uh, comes from a couple who were married, and they made God small, and, but by the end they're, they're praising him for his majesty. So it comes from Paul Miller. It's his name. Uh, he's the author of A Praying Life. Maybe you've read that book. In 1981, his wife was pregnant. And she prayed one prayer, and she prayed it from the book of of Psalm Psalm, Psalm in chapter 121. And she prayed this simple prayer. She said this, Lord, keep my baby from harm. Simple prayer. She's pregnant. Lord, keep my baby from harm. So as the baby was being born, everything went wrong. Baby came out blue, and they knew something was wrong with her daughter right away. And for the next two decades, they would struggle with raising a disabled daughter and not knowing what the diagnosis was until she was around age 19, where she was diagnosed with a form of autism, specifically pervasive development disorder. She had a a variety of problems. She had a floppy muscle tone. Her eyes couldn't focus. She had frequent pneumonia. And she had trouble breathing. So for the next 20 years, they're trying to take care of their disabled daughter. Uh, you know, when you have situations like this, you just throw everything you can, time and, and money, and they were living from paycheck to paycheck. And by the way, as they're raising their daughter, they have, they have six kids total. So there's a lot going on with them. This same child, I didn't add this part, but I will now. This same child didn't speak until she was 25. And so the mom prayed, no harm. And they were raising a very harmed child. The mom says that every day she would go to the foot of the cross of Jesus. She would take her daughter, you know, through prayer, to the foot of the cross of Jesus. And every day she would turn around and go back down. And she said, it hurt to hope. And for them, it's not like they were having an attitude with God or anything, but it just seemed like that God was kind of just distant. He couldn't pull it off. He couldn't fix this. He wasn't big enough. He didn't hear the prayer. Didn't you hear the prayer? No harm, and we have harm here. I'm going to come back to the story at the end, but I go to you right now. 
I am wondering if there's ever been a situation in your life where you're thinking to yourself, you know what, it hurts right now to even hope. I'm not even going to hope for things to get better. I'm not even going to hope in my prayer time with God that he can actually come through and do something here because I, I, I just hurt too much right now. And maybe in your mind, maybe in your heart, you're thinking, you know, God, I love you. You love me. You gave me Jesus. I praise you. But right now, you are small. You're not big. I doubt you're going to come through. I doubt you're going to intervene. And so you have this, this, this feeling of God being small. And kind of my, my goal is to, of course, sympathize with you and encourage you. But in, even I want to kind of ex- exhort you through the scriptures that by the end of our time together this morning, uh, that you'll see God is just is very, very big. He's full of riches. He's full of knowledge. He's full of wisdom. He's full of love. And he's sovereign and in control of your circumstances. And what I'm hoping for by the end of our time this morning, you'll start to move just a little bit, if not a lot of it, in the direction of praising God for his, his bigness, his majesty, his control of your life. And the way we're going to do this is we're going to look at a portion of the scriptures that you may have never studied before. And that's in the book of Romans chapter 11. We're going to talk a lot today about God. I hope that you came to church because you want to know God and who he is and what he's like. And we're going to do that a lot today. Now, I I find myself at times on Sunday morning apologizing to you, though I never actually apologize to you. But you'll hear me say often, we're going to have to work hard this morning to understand the text. Well, I'm going to not say that for at least maybe two weeks now, uh, and then I'll get back at it. But you're going to have to work hard this morning to understand the text. I mean, I hope that you have come here with some energy on your own that you want to dive into the Bible and see what it has to say. And this is one of the harder texts. It's like, on the spot, how many of you can tell me what Romans 11 is about? You can't, see, unless you cheat, right? Some of you can, but it's a hard chapter, We don't recall it often, but it's good. It's really, really good. So let's go ahead and turn there to Romans chapter 11. We are in the midst of making an argument that Paul started back in chapter 9. Back in chapter 9, the question that came about was concerning the low number of converts among the Jews. Did God's promises to Israel fail because we don't see many Jews being converted. And so Paul is walking through an argument. And I'm just showing you this for the last time. You don't have to write it down. I'll just show it to you quick. Here's the argument he's been making. In chapter 9, he made the argument that God does not elect everyone within Israel for salvation, but only a remnant. We talked a lot about predestination, election, nation. In chapter 10, the argument moved to part 2 that Israel is responsible for failing to believe the Messiah, so we have human responsibility. It's on them for their failure to believe. And then as we came to chapter 11, we started it last week, the idea is that God is still saving some Jews today, and there's going to be this great ingathering in the future. And we're going to touch on some of that today. And then Paul wraps up the chapter with this great doxology and praise to God and all his bigness and sovereignty. And even though we're going to cover lots of different passages from Romans 11 this morning, I thought it would be good to read this this conclusion of these three chapters, if not the conclusion of the first 11 chapters. So let's go ahead and stand. And I'm going to read to you this morning Romans chapter 11, 
verses 33 through 36. Let me read this to you. Romans 11, starting in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. This is a great hymn and praise to God for all that he has done and all that he's doing and all that he's going to do. Basically, what we're going to see this morning is the unfolding. What we have is God's plan for God's glory. This is all about God's plan for God's glory. And in Romans chapter 9, we've seen this play out in salvation history and election and predestination playing out in the saving and the hardening of the Jews, the coming in of the Gentiles. And what you're going to get here this morning, it's kind of a bonus. I didn't know you expected this. I know some of you are visiting because it's, it's graduation. You're visiting uh, your, your, your children. This is a great morning for you to come because you're actually going to get two sermons in one. We are going to finish up this argument in 11, and then go into the doxology at the end of 11. And the argument has been going uh, like this in chapter 11. It's kind of confusing. Try to stick with me. How can you explain the Jews not believing? A lot of ways to explain that. But the way it is explained in chapter 11 is that there is a partial hardening going on, which means that right now, as you know, look around the world, most Jewish people are not believing in Jesus. And during this time of partial hardening, you have, well, most of you are Gentiles. Most of the people in the world today who are followers of Jesus are Gentiles. But eventually, the amount of Gentiles will be saved. And once that happens, then you'll see masses amounts of, of Jews being saved. What's been called this mystery, that God has partially hardened Israel. Many Gentiles are now being saved, but there's this future salvation for Israel. And that's what we're going to see. So let's go ahead and jump in, starting with this mystery. Verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So once again, this mystery is the partial hardening of Israel. Gentiles are being saved, will be removed, and there is going to be this future salvation for Israel. But at present, there are very few Jews that are being saved because there's just temporary hardening. Now, your question is, how long will this hardening last? Well, if you check it out there, it says this will last until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is a reference to the elect number of Gentiles that will be saved. Do you know that number? I don't. Don't be making stuff up, all right, because I don't know that. You don't know that. But right now, throughout the world, Gentiles are coming to faith and Jews, some Jews, but Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus. And you and I play a part in this work. And guess what? It is not done. My third favorite book that I like to read, I've told you this before, my first favorite book is the Bible. It better be yours too. It's the Bible. And then Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. But Operation World is my third favorite book. It basically tells you a prayer book about the world and how the gospel is spreading in the world. And last night when I was looking at Operation World, I came to the country of Senegal in Africa. 
95% of Senegal are non-Christian with a variety of unreached people groups. You know, I don't know about you, but that should that burdens me. It should burden you. We should want to see the gospel spread to those who have never heard. And there are a variety of unreached people groups throughout the world. And this is part of God's plan to see the full number of the Gentiles come in. And you participate in that as you share the gospel. Locally, you participate in that as you share the gospel globally. But once this full number of the Gentiles come in, the Bible tells us that this hardness that has, been on South, that has been on Israel, will be lifted. And look what happens when this hardness is lifted from Israel. Look at verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. What does that mean? All Israel will be saved. Does this mean that once the right amount of number of Gentiles get saved, then every single Jew on the planet will be saved? No, it doesn't mean that. The phrase, all Israel, is very similar to the same phrase right before that, where it says, until the, until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. The fullness of the Gentile does not mean every single Gentile will be saved. It means every single elect Gentile will be saved in the same way where it says all Israel doesn't refer to every person, but only the elect who believe in Jesus. Similar phrases. So even though today, right now, we do not see many Jews believing in Jesus, there will come a time where there is going to be masses coming to Christ. And you know what this means? This is what this means. This means there is going to be revival in Skokie. (laughs) I live in Skokie. It's right next to Evanston. Skokie is filled with Jewish people. And one day, many of them are going to believe in Jesus and the masses. Until then, many will be converted. Absolutely, many will still come to Christ and Jews will still believe in Jesus. But there is coming a time there's going to be revival. Masses of Jews coming to faith in Christ. And the question is, when? When's this going to happen? I'm ready for it to happen now. When's this going to happen? The masses conversion of the Jews. Well, I believe without giving you a lot of charts and sequences of events that I am not absolutely sure of, I believe this is going to happen closer to the end times. When we say end times, don't freak out. We just mean closer and closer and connect it with the coming of Jesus Christ back to this earth. Look at verse 15 from last week that I made you put on hold. I told you I wouldn't explain it to you last week. Now I'm going to explain it to you. Look at verse 15 from chapter 11. Romans 11.15 says this. For if their rejection, the Jews, means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So Paul's making this argument. If Jews start to believe in Jesus, what's this going to mean but life from the dead? Now, you may say, well, does that, is that, does that mean something spiritual? Is, that, is he talking about spiritual like in people, once the Jews come to faith in Christ, then more and more everybody else will come to faith in the Christ? And that, that, that sounds like a good argument. But that phrase, life from the dead, rarely is interpreted spiritually in the Bible. 
And the New Testament, almost every time it's used, it is a reference to something literally, life from the dead. And so the argument goes for many scholars that what's going to happen here when the masses and masses of Jews are coming to faith in Christ, it is close to the life from the dead. That is the resurrection of the body, life from the dead. When you die, if you're a believer, your soul goes to be with Jesus and your body is left behind. When Christ comes back, your soul is joined with your body, glorified body, forever. That life from the dead phrase, I think, is a connection. At the end times, I do not understand how it all works. Like I said, all the sequences. But when Christ is coming back, mass is revival among the Jewish people as they are going to believe in Jesus. And I think there's a connection here with the Old Testament references that Paul gives. This is very technical. I'm sorry, guys. There I go, apologizing again. But it's very technical. Look at verse 26. And in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The deliverer, that's referring to Jesus. He's going to be bringing salvation to Israel. But look once again at the text. It's an Old Testament quote. That he is coming not to Zion, but from Zion. What does that mean? Jesus is coming from Zion? Once again, to get technical, perhaps this means that during the millennium, uh, that's another confusing word, during the millennium when Jesus is reigning on this earth for a thousand years after his return, perhaps it means that during that time you'll see massive amounts of Jews coming to faith in Christ. Maybe that's what it means. Or it means uh, Zion, heavenly Jerusalem, that Jesus is going to come from Zion, that is, in his return, he's going to come here, and we're going to have masses conversions of the Jews. I, I don't know what the sequence looks like. Either way you take it, there's going to be a massive gathering of Jews to be saved in the end times. The hardness will be lifted, and you'll see Jews converted, and you'll see revival come. Let's move into the second idea. Let's kind of throw some Gentiles back in there. How both Jews and Gentiles are both beneficiaries of God's salvation at the present time. Look at verse 28. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now receive mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Throughout the Old Testament, you have a certain attitude among the Jewish people where they don't like Gentiles. God likes Gentiles, but often in the Old Testament, you will see the Jewish people have kind of a, an irritation, a hate for Gentiles. And, and, you, and you really see this in the story uh, of Jonah. He was a very disobedient prophet. M- many of the kids uh, over the summer in our church are studying Jonah. And as they're studying Jonah, they're learning that Jonah was supposed to go to this pagan nation of Nineveh and, and preach the gospel, the good news, right? And, and so that they could be saved because they were evil people. And Jonah's like, I don't want to do it. And you know why Jonah didn't want to do it? Because he knew God was merciful. 
He knew that God would forgive them if they repented, and he didn't want to do it, so he went the other direction. But he finally ended up there, and God, what did God do? He showed mercy, because that's what God does. He shows mercy on people you do not expect him to show mercy on. And right now, he's showing mercy on you, Gentiles. But don't be like Old Testament Jews and get an arrogance toward Jewish people. Do not look down on Jewish people and and start to say, well, I'm superior. You got all the promises. You blew it. Now I'm believing. Forget you. We talked about that last week. We're not to be arrogant that God has had mercy on us because there is coming a time where God's still going to intervene and save the Jewish people who believe in Jesus. And it says specifically in verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. It's like it's been God's plan all along, I love this, to not only have mercy on the Gentiles, but eventually he's going to bend it back onto the Jews. Isn't that beautiful? So it's been his plan. When Jesus comes, he's going to have mercy upon the Gentiles, and eventually he's going to bend it back upon the Jews in a mass revival, which is going to show you that we are all sinful, and God has mercy on those who repent both Jews and Gentiles. And too many times we act like that now that God has saved us, that we are the end goal of his salvation. Maybe we get arrogant toward those on the outside. Maybe we try to contain the gospel. I I sometimes have a conversation with you that I I get uncomfortable with you because I feel like you are uh, being negative toward a certain people. Maybe you're being negative toward a certain religion. And there's, there's a way where we can point out false doctrine without acting like that Jesus didn't come to save them. You know what I mean? You know what I'm talking about? So what I'm, what I'm saying is that we, we want this power of salvation to come to the Muslim and to the Hindu. We want the, the gospel to be proclaimed to the liberal and to the conservative. We want the gospel to come to the hipster and to the elite because all are disobedience. And all can have mercy, the salvation of the gospel in Jesus. And what's kind of cool, can I just say this to you? Even you, right now, I I don't know your situation, I don't know your background, I don't know what category you fall in, but realize this, Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived a perfect life, and he was killed on the cross, bearing the wrath of God in your place, that's true. And he died, he was buried, and arose again. And the message is for you. I don't know your category, I don't know your situation. You repent of your sins, put your faith in Jesus, you can be forgiven and, and welcomed into this family of God made up of, of Jewish believers and Gentile believers. God has set up the plan this way, and it's for his glory. So that's kind of the argument we've been looking at for a long time over the last several weeks God has been working this plan, and he's been doing it all for his glory. And then we come to this great doxology that kind of sums it all up. Look again at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. This is be so good for you to memorize, by the way, meditate on. 
Paul's like leading us in worship to God for his great plan of salvation, the depth of his riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. He is to be prayed for his praise for his salvation and riches and the wisdom of his great plan and the knowledge that it entails. And who are you and who am I to try to search out this plan, which is unsearchable and inscrutable, which basically means you cannot pin down God's salvation plan. You cannot say God saves this person but not saves that person. You cannot say God's mercy is about to strike here and not strike there because you never know where God's salvation mercy is going to hit. That's why I think it's very important to continue to love people, share the gospel, pray for people. Uh, on, On the afternoons in Evanston... I often will go out for a run along by the lake. I've been doing this for years, and I'll see people I've seen over, over the years. We crossed on the lake. We'll talk to some of them. Um, and I've had some interesting conversations uh, over these times, and one person has been in a group uh, walking their dogs in, in the afternoon, and she, she's getting older and older and having some specific ailments. And this past week I was interacting with her, and I just told her I'd be praying for her to feel better. But, you know, I'm also praying for God's salvation mercy to strike. And I say, well, why not? Why can't God save people who walk their dogs in Evanston? Why not? Why can't people be saved from all over the world? Why not? Can I say, God, you can't save Muslims because we don't see many Muslims coming to Christ? Well, why not? We don't want to limit God, box him in, say he's going to save. Don't want to say, well, you know, those people in Evanston, they're not going to believe. They're into all this weird stuff. They're never going to believe. Well, why not? Are you you trying to dissect God's plan and say he's going to leave certain people out and so you'll share the gospel with this certain people? But not What are you doing? We can't figure out God's plan. It's rooted in his riches, his knowledge, and his wisdom. And it's his plan, and he's working it out. And it's going to shock and surprise us who he's going to save. And Paul kind of elaborates on this thesis in verses 34 and 35. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Verse 34 is from Isaiah 40, 13, and touches on God's knowledge and wisdom. And with regard to his knowledge, remember I told you today I'm going to talk a lot about God. With regard to God's knowledge and his wisdom, he reveals to us what's up about himself through his word. But beyond that, we cannot know all that is God is thinking. If you want me to tell you about God, I'll talk about this, the word of God. Beyond that, I I don't know what's going on. But there's a lot here from the word of God. But our knowledge and wisdom is limited. But what we don't want to do is get to a point where we design God. My brothers and sisters, don't design God. You're going to get in trouble when you start speaking about God and twisting his words and talking outside of the word of God. And you'll see this all the time. I mean, there's an entire denomination this past week, if you're paying attention to the news, who have decided to to throw, years ago they threw out the Bible. And now they're just creating weird and fanciful stuff. That has nothing to do with the Word of God. And when you see it in the news, you shouldn't freak out because it's nothing new when people try to design God. Let God be who He is, who He's revealed Himself to be in His Word. Don't try to add stuff to Him, make stuff twist. Let God be God. Because when you design your own God, all you have is an idol. You do not have the true Lord. In addition, with regard to His wisdom, you see that not only does God have knowledge, but he also has wisdom. 
And the, what we can take away from God's wisdom is that we don't need to counsel God. God doesn't need our advice. No one has the right to give God advice and suggest that he comes up with a better plan. And I know we are to pray, we are to ask certain things from God, but there is a difference between going to, get to God in prayer and going to God and with counsel. Let God counsel you. You don't counsel him. And there's a distinction here. When you pray, you cry out. You ask for mercy. You can talk to God. But when you start to counsel God, you bring in the arrogant attitude of pride. And when you bring in the pride, you're saying, God, I have a, I have a pretty good idea that's much better than your idea. Don't counsel God. And then we see in verse 35 this is whoever has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. I, I like that. Once again, we're talking about God. This is from Job. Job 41.11 has the idea of paying back God. Well, give me a break. God is never in your debt. So never bill God. Don't bill God. We never give things to God like counsel where he is obligated to pay us back. Do not create these dirty deals with God like, God, I'll do something for you and then you give me something in return and you'll become in my debt. So God, if I do a nice quiet time, go to church and, and give in the offering plate, then you have to give me a date. Have you ever done that? Like, God, I went to church. I read my Bible. Where's my date? God is not in your debt. Don't bill God. doesn't work like that. God is God. You, you kind of put it all together. You say, okay, don't design God. Trust him in his knowledge. Don't counsel God. Rest in his wisdom. And don't bill God. Receive his salvation riches. See, we're trying to keep the attention on God. We're trying to keep him big, and we're, we want to keep us small. So if we're designing him, counseling him, billing him, then we're big and he's small. But we want to be the flip, flip of that. And then we finish up with the last verse. This is a great verse. Once again, it's about God. Verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is wonderful. God has structured his sovereign plan to bring him complete glory. And the way he set up the salvation of us, the Jews and Gentiles, through Jesus is about bringing him glory. And all that we see in history and all that we see unfolding in history comes, according to the Bible, from him, he is the source. All that we see in history and all that we see unfolding in history has a purpose and meaning, notice, through him. And all that we see in history and unfolding in history is aimed to him. And you put it all together that he is the source, he is the sustainer, and he is the goal. All in all, God is sustaining, creating, and working for his everlasting glory. It's all about God. It's all about God's plan. It's all about God's glory. And, you know, the church can get excited, and we can say, God, it's all about you, and we can say something like, amen. Amen? Amen. All right, so we're, we're down with that on Sunday morning, looking in the Word of God. We see that God is working a plan for his glory. We understand that. He is big. He can be especially big on Sunday morning when we're getting to the Word. Now, here's the deal. God tends to shrink during the week. I have no idea how that happens. He tends to shrink during the week. When you go to your job tomorrow morning, whatever happens, you may feel like God has shrunk from the, what he was on Sunday. But God is still God at your work. God is still God at, at your school. But you know where God uh, tends to shrink the most? In suffering. 
he's big. And then sometimes he's like, God, you're not going to be able to pull this off. I don't know if I can trust you or you get small. God doesn't shrink. That's you. <laughs> you're the one shrinking, right? You're the one having issues there. So here's the story I want to end with. If you're paying attention to the story at the beginning, I'm going to give you the story at the end. It's the couple I mentioned earlier. The mom prayed during her pregnancy for no harm to come to her child, and they raised a very harmed child with a variety of medical problems. And like I said, their, their child didn't even speak to their 25 uh, years of age. But what this couple started to realize, and it, it, takes, it takes years to figure stuff out, right? When we're in the midst of suffering, we don't see what's going on. And it's hard to see. But after years of suffering, we can pull back and we can say, oh, God, you, you are good. You're God. You're big. I praise you. But in the midst of it, it's hard to see. So it took them 20 years to start to realize, huh, God was using their disabled daughter to save them in a variety of ways. Let me explain. For starters, before their child was born back in 1981, the dad, he said his heart was off. He said he was really into cashing in, making a lot of money. Uh, greed was consuming his life. He was going to pursue some ventures just for the fact of getting rents, rich. And once his daughter was born, he had to put all these selfish ventures on hold. And he's like, what, what am I going to do? And so his dad, he started to partner with his dad. His dad was a, a kind of a maybe quasi-famous um, missionary, pastor type guy. So he started to, you know, partner with his dad. And he and his dad, back in the day, after this, um, started a missions agency. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called World Harvest Mission. And that missions agency would not have existed unless their daughter was born disabled. Now, during this time, if you ever raised a child who has a variety of troubles, if you ever raised a, a child who has difficulties you will see that there's probably going to be a lot of tension in your marriage. I mean, marriage is hard as it is, but you throw in there a child that requires a lot of time and attention, things can get really tough. And so the same was happening to them as the mom was going under a tremendous amount of stress raising this disabled child. In the middle of it all, she pretty much confronted her husband and said, look, look, do you still love me? I mean, you're doing these things for me. I understand you're being a servant. I get that. But do you, do you even love me anymore? And this kind of interaction and clash just kind of broke them both. And out of this, out of this time of bro- brokenness and clashing, uh, out of this time came um, some written books that they wrote and the start of a brand new ministry. And I want to tell you, this past year, I've not read any books better than the two by this guy. Praying Life, and The Loving Life have been my favorite books this year. So good. And it's interesting, good stuff comes out of suffering, right? I'm glad it happened to him and not me, right? <laughs> good stuff comes out of suffering. All right, so I'm, I'm still telling the story. So even, even the family members are being changed. Remember I told you they had six kids? Well, some of the members of some of their kids and their family and their interaction and growing up with this um, disabled sister they decided, you know, I'm going to throw my whole life into this. And two of the kids have decided to be special ed teachers. And the family spends uh, every summer at a camp working with adults with disabilities. 
Now, if you remember, I told you earlier uh, in, in the sermon that this child had breathing problems, especially over the winter, and they couldn't figure out, why does this kid, uh, it's got a lot of medical problems, why, why does she have breathing problems? And the dad thought, you know, I'm just going to install electric, you know, electric baseboard heaters. It must be something to do with the other heating system. So he just installed electric baseboard heaters. Now, what's interesting, they found out that when they sold their house 10 years, <laughs> their gas furnace wasn't installed right, and it was leaking carbon monoxide. And their daughter's condition made her susceptible to the effects of carbon monoxide. So the disabled daughter actually kept the family from harm. And 20 years later, the husband said to his wife, Honey, God answered your prayer. He kept us from all harm. And he started listing out all the ways that their daughter kept them from harm. And they thought that the harm was a child with disabilities. But nothing was compared to the danger of two proud and willful parents. And so for them, God all of a sudden got really big. It's too bad it took 20 years, but God got really big. As they can reflect back on all the suffering, and God is working this and this and this and this because he has this great plan for his glory. My brothers and sisters, chances are you're like me. You can't see all that God is doing in your life. And I know things may be hard. And you may think you can't pull it off. He may seem small, but he is a big God who's full of riches and wisdom and knowledge. And he's a source. He's a sustainer. He's a creator. He's working stuff in your life. He's trying to move you in this direction, move you in the direction. He's working for your good, and he's working for his glory. And he is a big God. And we want to trust him and praise him in all his glory. Let's pray. Father, we cannot see all. You can. We did not create. You did. We cannot sustain our lives. We are falling apart. You must sustain us. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters right now who are in a time of suffering and they wonder where you are on the horizon, if you're there at all. And I just ask that you would remind them that you're very much involved in their lives as you've invaded them with salvation. You've poured out your riches You have wisdom and knowledge that you're working for their good and your glory. And Lord, even though we can't see it all, we just ask that you would enable us to worship you. Worship you right now when we can't fix stuff. Worship you when things are still broken and things are still uh, inconclusive. Help us to worship you and to trust you when the the results that we want. Help us to trust you in everything and to give you all the glory regardless of the outcomes, regardless of the relationships and the circumstances. Help us to trust you that you are in control. Speak that truth by the power of your spirit to the hearts of my brothers and sisters and build them up and let them know that though it may hurt to hope, you hold them, you're there, and they can hope in you. And pray this in Jesus' name, amen.